Matthew chapter 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I'll tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that had been sold to repay the debt. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called his servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Thanks, Sophie. Oh my, I'm thinking about how people have changed and how people haven't changed, and there's one that's sort of grown. Uh, But Ken and Jeanette look just the same as ever. Uh, And Ken, I just... Where are you? Ah, I just want you to know, I forgive you for stealing my sermon introduction for this talk, okay? (laughs) Mentioning the Lord's Prayer like that. Uh, Shall we we pray as we turn again? It's the same prayer. Heavenly Father, give us a greater grasp on your grace that we might give grace to others through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So, as Ken said, uh, the Lord Jesus taught his followers, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Uh, he put that line right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. One of my ministry trainees, uh, we, we, we've got a CB church, CBD church, Sean would remember it, car park right in the centre of town. And now you have to have you know, paid parking on the street, so people are always parking illegally. This trainee was a keen evangelist, uh, Ben, you'd remember, and uh, when he saw people parking illegally, he, he'd say to them, oh, I just work for the church. He said, do you know that line in the Lord's Prayer? They go, what? He said, um, forgive us our trespasses <laughs> as we forgive those who trespass against us. Can we talk about that? And um, it didn't always... Uh, have a good gospel conversation, but it sometimes help them not park illegally. Uh, where was I? 
that was, that was just an early on to stop you falling asleep. Uh, Karen said she's losing it, so uh, I'll forgive the rest of you. Um, it says we need God's forgiveness and we need to forgive others. Jesus clearly thinks we need to keep praying about those two things. Now, not so long ago, I visited an elderly churchgoer in hospital. She was lonely and sad, sometimes happens, and so we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. And then she spent the rest of our conversation complaining and being very rude to the lady in the next bed. Her neighbour, it was obvious to me as a visitor, was clearly lonely as well. My parishioner saw her as a busybody. Uh, she was upset by the neighbour's nosiness to our conversation, and it was nosy. But perhaps it can be excused, my friend's rudeness, as the irrationality caused by encroaching dementia. I understand that. But the contradiction of having prayed the Lord's Prayer with me, followed by angry rudeness to your neighbour, did stand out to me. All our conflict resolution skills, all our diplomatic rebukes, all our apologies will be for nothing if we can't get forgiveness right. Right off the first two talks, if we can't get forgiveness right. What does it mean then to be forgiven? How can we forgive when it hurts? This is an attempt to unpack forgiveness. To do it, you must understand that from God's point of view, forgiveness will involve some crazy mathematics that may puzzle an accountant, at least the bean counter type of accountant. We're returning to the chapter we began with this morning. You heard it read, Matthew 18, and to its theme of unlimited forgiveness. I'm reading from verse 21, which introduces the extent of forgiveness. Verse 21 says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And we often think of Peter as Mr. Foot in Mouth. But he's learnt from Jesus that Jesus thinks it's important to forgive. Just before, in chapter 18, we saw Jesus speak about conflict resolution with true reconciliation as its aim. But Peter also thinks there must be some limits to forgiveness. He's not naive. Presumably, like you, he knows what it is to be hurt. So he inquires about the reasonable benefits limit. I think that's from the Superfund world, isn't it? How far can you go before forgiveness is off the table? All the same, he's in a generous mood. He suggests Seven times, which was more than twice the religious consensus back then. Typically, rabbis of the day said, forgive three times with no forgiveness for a fourth offence. Jesus' reply in verse 22 upends Peter's thinking. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but... 77 times. And of course, you missed the point. If you think Jesus was saying you should only get, finally get pinged for your 78th speeding offence. He's telling Peter that forgiveness is not about spiritual bean counting, about scoring the number of wrongs you've endured. Remember, just in passing that verse, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. You've missed the 
point if you think forgiveness is all about calculating reasonable risks for how far you can go with another person. Jesus is saying that forgiving cannot be limited by the frequency of the other's sins. And he explains why in the parable that follows. That God has forgiven every single Christian far more than a Christian will ever have to forgive in others. Whereas someone much cleverer than I has said, forgiven sinners forgive sins. Forgiven sinners forgive sins. So, the first part of the parable, point two, is intended to underline just how much we've been forgiven by God. Verse 23 and 4. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Jesus making a comparison between God and the king in the story. He's reminding us all, there'll be a day of reckoning. There'll be a judgment. In the story, the king is running an audit, an audit on his servants, perhaps these particular servants, or his chief financial officers of his various businesses, the CFOs. Perhaps they were the tax farmers who'd won the contract to collect the taxes in his different regions. Now had to cough up the contract price. Doesn't really matter. The point is that this man had an unrepayable debt that he's bankrupt. A talent was the largest measure of weight in the ancient Middle East. Uh, King David donated 10,000 talents of precious metals to build a temple. So we're talking about the sort of money it costs to build a public monument like the Sydney Opera House. In today's terms, it's a debt of multi-millions, in fact, maybe even a billion bucks. And so we're supposed to see this as a picture of our moral bankruptcy before God, that our sin runs up an unrepayable debt to God, because in the end, friends, all sin is primarily a sin against God. King David hurt many people as he lied and cheated his way to adultery and to a successful conspiracy to murder. But remarkably, when he confessed his sins in Psalm 51, surprisingly he said it was, quote, "...against you, you only, O God, have I sinned." Christians believe that regardless of the size of its impact on others... Sin is first and foremost an act of rebellion against an infinitely moral and majestic God. Now, in Jesus' story, verse 25, the inability to pay sees the king punish the debtor. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Imprisoning debtors was a common way of dealing with defaulters in many cultures. Uh, You can see why it stops people sconding to Majorca to avoid dealing their debts. Scasing away, I think it's called. Uh, A sale into a debtor's prison might allow you to recoup some of your losses because it gave the imprisoned relatives an incentive to repay the debt to get their loved one freed. However, in this case, selling the man and his family into slavery would not even go close to meeting his gigantic liability. This man was simply being punished for his offence. The man had run up a huge debt. He would pay a huge penalty as a consequence. He's going to lose everything, including his family. 
justice is no use to him now. So, verse 26, he goes for mercy. At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. He asked for more time. He wants the king to throw him a lifeline for a crazy repayment scheme. He's so desperate, he promises what he cannot possibly deliver, repayment of a billion dollar black hole. And now we're getting to the heart of the story, to verse 27's insight into God's character. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. The king is merciful or compassionate. He does far more than he was asked, doesn't he? He doesn't give time to pay, which was unrealistic anyway. He gives him debt cancellation instead. And so verse 27 helps us to define forgiveness. The base meaning of the actual Greek word translated to forgive simply means to let go, to to release. And the word was often used in the context of debt cancellation. Forgiveness is the tearing up of the moral debt owed you by the person who wronged you. It's not giving them time to pay. It's about not making them pay you back, nor punishing them for the failure to do so. Sometimes there is a literal debt or penalty for which you can demand punishment, uh, payment. Other times you demand they make it up to you some other way, don't you? Uh, you can punish them, uh, now I'm not talking about the criminal thing, you punish people by lashing back at them or by gossiping, telling everyone about their failings or by being cold and distant. That's what they deserve, after all, it's what their conduct earned. Or you can forgive. You cancel the debt in your mind and heart. You decide not to punish. Now this definition, uh, release of debt, if agreed, clears up some common myths. People sometimes think forgiveness is a feeling, where somehow we've got to feel better about the person who hurt us. Not quite how they say it, but you know the kind of thing. But although forgiveness, I think, is connected into our feelings, it is not itself a feeling. For example, we may decide to forgive a person their transgression and yet still struggle with sadness or anger about the events. And forgiveness is not just forgetting. Forgetting is a passive process where something just fades over the process of time or by deliberate blocking. Forgiveness is an active process involving a deliberate decision to release the debt. I know we often say forgive and forget. You might even quote Isaiah 43 verse 25 where God says to his people that he remembers your sins no more. But clearly when you think about it, the all-knowing God... Some of you even know the old-fashioned way of saying it. Omnipotent. Omniscient. (laughs) Oh, good, you're awake. He's not confessing to an amnesiac failure, is he? He's not saying he cannot remember your sins. He's promising he will not call them to mind. The parallel part of the verse says, he blots out your transgressions. So forgiving means choosing not to dwell on the offence caused by the other person. And of course that can be really hard if the memories are painful. And forgiveness is not excusing. Excusing someone means saying, that's okay, 
It wasn't really so bad. That's more like forbearance, isn't it? Bearing with. Ah, you couldn't help it. No, forgiveness means honesty. It says what you did was wrong and inexcusable, but I absorbed the cost myself and forgive you. God doesn't excuse our sins. He doesn't say, ah, it doesn't really matter. He says our sins matter so much it took Jesus to the cross. Clearly the first servant's debt in Matthew 18 is a picture of the forgiveness we have through trusting Christ. In his son's death on the cross, God... Theologians struggle to find the right word. God absorbed the penalty for us. And so we're freed from judgment. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. It's what you earn. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So friends, just to remind you, the parable says, We've been, you've been forgiven a billion dollar debt. And remember, forgiven sinners must forgive. Forgiven sinners forgive sins. That's the expectation Jesus sets up with this master's divine act of mercy. Sadly, it's not always how it works out as Jesus' parable continues, verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Uh, The silver coin, a denarius. Uh, Pay for a day's labour. The second servant's debt of a hundred denarii is about... I guess $20,000 in today's terms. You can see why the man would be anxious about that amount of money. That's not a tiny debt to be sneezed at. But it fades into insignificance. It fades into insignificance against the debt he'd been forgiven. There were, I think, 1,000 denarii to one talent, this debt is one one hundred thousandth of his debt to the king. And so when a second servant begs for mercy in verse 29, we're expecting a little compassion, aren't we? His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. His words almost an exact echo of what the first servant begged the king for three verses earlier. And the response in verse 30 is the complete opposite. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And that first servant's attitude is appalling. He will not extend the same gift that was extended to him. He'll not even give time to pay. The height of ingratitude. In verse 31, the other servants are distressed by the inconsistency they've witnessed, told their master everything that had happened. And verse 32 and 3 show how greatly this unforgiving ingratitude angered the king. But the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancel all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? If you put your trust in Jesus... Think how much you've been forgiven by God. All that debt. Jim Packer says, There can be no small sins against a great God. 
And so true Christians know that those who receive God's amazing grace should act with grace to others. And the flip side is that Jesus describes refusal to have mercy on a fellow debtor, he describes it as wickedness. Unforgiveness grieves God's heart. That one sin alone, the rest was repaid, wasn't it? rest was forgiven. And that one sin alone, verse 34 says, it'll be judged. In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Friends, we should not reason from the details of a parable here that God, for example, likes torturing sinners. The simple point is that final punishment for, it is the final punishment for those who persist in a refusal to forgive. Jesus implies that if we refuse to forgive others, we've not understood forgiveness ourselves. The only reason I can think of why the servant demands to be paid back the much smaller debt is because he did not listen. Remember back in verse 27, it says, the master's own voice, he cancelled the debt. The first servant wasn't just given time to pay, but complete debt cancellation but he thinks he still has to pay the king off. You know, he's got to chase up his debtors so he can pay it off. I don't think he ever actually received the forgiveness for what it was. Jesus draws his conclusion, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Followers of Jesus must forgive others. We must do it from the heart. If we refuse to forgive others, we're inviting God to withhold his forgiveness from us. This raises the question of whether forgiveness is unconditional. Do we have to forgive someone if they won't admit they've done the wrong thing? What if they don't seem sorry at all? In the church where I served as a student minister, there was a young lady who'd been sexually abused by her stepfather. I apologise for a distressing story like this. Some well-meaning Christians, and they really were, urged her to forgive him, which caused her great distress because he wouldn't even admit he'd done anything wrong. Now, she seemed remarkably free of bitterness, But to tell her to offer forgiveness made no sense, and you can understand why. Someone needed to be forthright about this man's crimes. It was was a terribly insensitive thing to say, you've just got to forgive him. At times like those, my mind has often turned to Luke 17 and verse 3. The only other cross-reference, I think. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. If he repents. It's a conditional sentence. It seems to imply you need not forgive if there's no repentance first. So I am reluctant to command a victim to forgive in the face of a refusal to repent. To say that again, I am reluctant to command a victim to forgive in the face of a refusal to repent. 
But the more I've thought on Luke 17 and verse 3, the less I think it's a proof text to make forgiveness conditional. You just look at the context. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 says it's a really terrible situation for the person who causes others to sin. People like that person, the one who causes others to stumble, that person really needs forgiveness badly. So verse verse 3, if that's what they need, rebuke them. But the context also is implying that we find it really hard to forgive. That's part of the point, isn't it? That's what verse 4 is getting at when it echoes the seven times repeated sin of Matthew 18. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So I don't really think Luke 17, 3 and 4 is answering a question about the precise conditions under which we may or may not forgive. Its main point is that Christian forgiveness has no limits. It should occur regardless of the size or quantity of a sin. In fact, verse 4 may even imply that a repentance which seems inadequate because the bloke keeps on doing the same sin again and again, even that should be forgiven, even a repentance you suspect might just be lip service. Now, we know that forgiveness is not automatic with God. We need to ask him. But in the death of Jesus, he'd already done everything needed to make it possible before we even thought of asking. In fact, when could you ever say our repentance to God is ever fully adequate? When could our sorrow for sin ever really be sincere enough or sufficient? Our repentance is certainly not a work we do to contribute to our salvation, not even a bit. So I guess I'm saying don't get worked up trying to mind read over whether another person is is truly sincerely sorrowful or, or quibbling about whether they're sufficiently repentant towards us. Still, I think it is often pastorally helpful and right to draw a distinction. I think Anna was saying this in a question before or moving up to it. It's very helpful to draw a distinction between a forgiving spirit and forgiveness as a relational transaction. A forgiving spirit, that's where you can pray for your enemies. And Jesus once said that, didn't he? release them from the bitterness. Forgiveness as the completed transaction, that's often what we talk about as actual reconciliation. And that can't happen before there's some kind of repentance. But the forgiving spirit can still be offered. Now, remember we did all that exception work in the first two talks? You've got to integrate the three talks here today. But the big take-home at the end is to realise that forgiven sinners will always work to forgive sins. As C.S. Lewis put it, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And here and elsewhere Jesus teaches this without allowing us easy escape hatches 
When we've been forgiven so much through Christ's death, we must be willing to forgive others. I do not pretend this is easy. So, the third point on the outline, I'm offering a few practicalities of forgiveness, and the word practicality sounds so inadequate. Ken Sandy's four promises of forgiveness are very helpful. He says, one, I will not dwell on this incident. I'm going to repeat them. Two, I will not bring this incident up again to use against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So I'm just going to repeat them. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring this incident up again to use against you. Number three, I'll not talk to others about this incident. Number four, I'll not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. The poet in Psalm 103, verses 3 and 4, said, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, Lord, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness. It is so good, it is so, so good to experience that. You stuff up. Maybe you repeatedly stuff up big time. And your boss or your wife says they forgive you. And you keep expecting them to bring it up to hold it against you, perhaps when you stumble again. And instead they keep acting kindly. No cold shoulder and only warmth. They never mention it again. Note carefully a couple of important footnotes to the promises. Ken Sandy says they should not be used rigidly or mechanically. So, for example, the second promise says, I'll not bring the incident up again and use it against you. This is not meant to prevent a person honestly, humbly encouraging you to address a recurring pattern of sin. That would be the wounds of a friend, wouldn't it? Imagine someone who keeps losing their temper. You've been a target in the past. They've apologised. You've forgiven. But it's happened again. Uh, Maybe again and again. Maybe against someone else. And so sometimes you need to point out the ongoing pattern to urge him to get some help to deal with his underlying anger issues. If all you're allowed to do is mention the last incident because you forgave all the other ones, you might be able to brush it off, mightn't you? I think bringing up his past, the pattern, is not breaking the second promise because you're not using it against him, but for his good to encourage him gently to a deeper change and growth. But saying there should be a good, compelling reason before you bring something up again. What about consequences? In forgiveness, I said you promise not to let the offence stand between you or hinder your personal relationship with the person. But other consequences might remain. To take an obvious example, a Christian minister may be forgiven for adultery. But the consequence is he no longer possesses the biblical requirement of a reputation that's above reproach. So I think public eldership ministry is no longer available to him, though he's forgiven. 
A church treasurer embezzles church funds to feed gambling addiction. You may forgive the breach of trust, but you may also seek some repayment as part of his repentance. Even if you forego repayment as unrealistic, legal consequences may still remain. He may be barred from holding office in your kind of organisations. In the case of abuse, we have responsibilities to report it to the authorities. We should never cover it up. True repentance for an offender will mean submitting to the necessary legal consequences and if if they won't, you know they're not repentant. And it will often not be safe or appropriate to expect any kind of relationship with such an offender, even if they're repentant. For example, a man who is a domestic abuser needs to confront the evidence, very good study evidence now, that such behaviour is almost always a very entrenched pattern and sadly cannot always be overcome. It's not just a matter of saying, won't happen again. I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Repentance there would mean accepting at the very least you're going to undergo a very extensive treatment kind of program and you can't just expect to return home. Philip Yancey reports the heat of an argument with his wife and... uh, discussing, he says, his failings. She said, I think it's pretty amazing that I forgive you for some of the dastardly things you've done. And he writes, what struck me about her comment was its sharp insight into the nature of forgiveness. It is no sweet ideal to be sprayed into the world like air freshener from a can. Forgiveness is achingly difficult. And long after you've forgiven, the wounds live on in memory. Forgiveness is an unnatural act, and my wife was protesting its blatant unfairness. It's so easy to see my run-of-the-mill sins, busy indifference, impatient speech, a spot of pride or prayerlessness, that's, that's just a hundred denarii sin. It's so easy to assume my sin is not as bad as my wife or kids or my work colleagues' deceit or my neighbour's selfishness or those very wicked people on TV. And we tally their repeated failures as much closer to the talent weight of debt. Friends, to keep going down that route is to miss the lesson of Matthew 18. Because what's really amazing is not is not what dastardly deeds we might have forgiven a boss or a neighbour or even a family member. And there have been some truly awful abuses perpetrated to struggle with forgiveness. But what's really amazing is how much God has forgiven us. We must see ourselves in the shoes of the thousand talent debtor. We all, every single last one of us, need someone to stand between us and the justified wrath of God. We all need the Father's forgiveness. So we all need the Saviour's atonement. But if we are going to claim that wonderful forgiveness through Jesus' cross, then we must remember that forgiven sinners forgive sins. In the end, 
That's the only foundation that conflicts will be resolved or that as a friend we may offer wounds that can be trusted.